Hello and welcome to the Society for Acute Medicine podcast. Here we discuss topics, cases and anything new and upcoming in the world of acute medicine. This is our view and take. Remember to always do your own reading around the topics we discuss. Enjoy the show. Hello everybody and welcome to another Sam podcast. This week or this month or whatever our current uh, frequency is that we're on at the moment, we're going to be talking about AKI and I've got the lovely Peter Unger with me. Hello, Peter. Hello, everybody. And as a special guest this time, we have um, Dr. Austin Hunt, who is head of the renal subgroup of SAM and uh, obviously got an interest in AKI and also a renal physician as well as an acute physician. Although I was pleased to hear at Blackpool that if we cut him in half like a stick of rock, it will say acute medicine. Um, Do you want to say hello, Austin? (laughs) Hi, Vicky, Peter. Uh, Everyone calls me Oz, but nice to see you all. So I'm at Plymouth and I'm half acute med and half renal and we also just discovered in the chat that you're also um despite not really sounding like it got some scouse heritage as well so peter and i are feeling very much at home here (laughs) okay it's definitely my hometown (laughs) so um we're going to talk a little bit about aki When, when we're looking at the podcast we've done so far they are quite um renal heavy and I, I don't see this as an issue, actually, because there's lots to discuss regarding nephrology and acute medicine, something we see a lot of, um, and AKI particularly. And, and I think we'll go on to discuss this, but are we actually managing it as well as we could do? So we do have an AKI subgroup. So those of you who are interested, please do contact us in the usual way, because we can put you in touch with us and get you a part of that subgroup. You don't necessarily need um, any special qualifications just an interest in AKI. Um, so before we start talking about a case then, Oz, how, how are we doing with AKI? Are we all managing it perfectly? Uh, well, I, first thing I always do is go back to that oh, 2009 report that highlighted it as a bit of a national scandal. And I've got to say, Vicky, for the last 15 years or there, thereabouts, all my on calls and all my interactions at two o'clock in the morning do- convince me that we're not doing it right, that the basics aren't done. And I think that's the take home message. All those NC pod report highlight banners are still true. Clinician knowledge at the coalface is poor. And that for me is one of the main issues. Okay. And I'm not, sadly that I don't think that surprises me very much. And certainly um, you did a brilliant talk at um, Sam Glasgow and that sort of highlighted some of this to me. So I thought we'll do what we usually do is we'll start with a case just to highlight a very barn door thing that comes into to AMU. So we've got an 85 year old Doris who's got a pneumonia. So we, we go and clerk her. It's a barn door left basal pneumonia. When we see her results, she's got a crea- uh, sorry a potassium of five, a urea of seven and a creatinine of 94. Now, the biggest hurdle here is that I haven't got any old results to compare to. She's got a past medical history of uh, congestive cardiac failure, hypertension, and type 2 diabetes. Her medications are Brufen gel, which she uses occasionally for her osteoarthritis, some Ramipril, some aspirin, and some metformin. And Doris is quite good. She's independent of her ADL. She goes to bingo every week, and she lives with a granddaughter. So this seems like um, a kind of bond or patient that we see in the acute medical department. I would hazard a guess that not many people would think about her risk of AKI or even that she has an AKI. Peter, what's your take on that with those results? 
I mean, I wouldn't bat an eyelid at those blood results uh, on a uh, on the face of it. It's only because we're doing an AKI podcast <laughs> in this context. <laughs> Maybe I will think twice about that. But a year seven crown in the ninety four. So I, I guess what would on. happen is that I think what would happen to her is she'd get started on her amoxicillin, clorotomycin, IV orally, whatever sort of flavour. I don't think anybody would touch her medication. Some people might tut at the Brufen gel, but it probably just gets started anyway. And then she'd go up to one of the medical wards and she probably wouldn't get a renal function rechecked. But if we did, in this hypothetical case scenario, it gets rechecked sort of two weeks later when she's about to go home because somebody's noticed she's not looking so well. And a creatinine is now 200. So, Oz, is this common? Is this something that we don't do very well? What should we have done differently? I think it's really common. And I think, well, how can you make yourself a better clinician? Well, first of all, the index of suspicion should be high. This is an over 65-year-old who's coming in with an acute illness, but also has the usual full house of heart failure, diabetes, hypertension. And so that should make a decent clinician sit up and think, what's going on here? And, you know, the most important blood test of me is a creatinine. And the second most important blood test is the creatinine before the creatinine you've just seen. And, <laughs> and you... And you've pointed out that there isn't one. So what can we do? Well, maintain a high index of suspicion and a smart clinician might kick up a stink to the to the nurses in the bay and say, can we chart this lady's urine output, for example, if we can't trace it? Okay. And in terms of, so I was looking at the NICE guidance that we'll, we'll pop in our show notes that we sort of do alongside the podcast. But in terms of seeing somebody like this, that when in the nice guidance sort of looking at is she at risk of an aki and as you've just said so so she is would you have done anything with her medications at all i think look you know you've got to realize you, people think oh is it a long bank holiday weekend coming up is it dangerous actually admitting on a wednesday via ed in our hospital means that they get to the medical amu on the thursday if they clear midday they might be seen on the post take otherwise it's the friday and we say send to any medical ward but where do they go they go as an orthopedic outlier and before you know it it's monday no one's charted the urine output effectively and actually the creatinine is silently rising so in me for me that would be a typical pathway for this lady now i like aki and that's my interest i probably have a really low threshold to say you know stop the stop the proof and gel if there's an ace inhibitor there i'll be looking to stop it just for 24 hours but i'd be building into that plan to say hold these medicines for 24 and let's see what the creatinine is tomorrow i think that would be a reasonable thing for a clinician to do peter do you want to add anything uh, no, I I think that's a uh, very sensible. I think um, it, it's difficult because you hear mixed things about um, ACE inhibitors when someone's got diabetes um, and whether you should stop it acutely. And I suppose with a creatinine ninety four on on admission, you don't know whether that is actually a true baseline or whether it was actually sixty the day before. Uh, but I think withholding it and checking the creatinine the day, the day after, I think that's very sensible. And that's probably something I don't actually do. Yeah, Peter, can I just ask you sometimes, sorry, Vicky, do you, no, no, I'll go shut up and you can carry on. I was just going to say to Peter, sometimes I find myself looking at the, having been in the coroner's court with a, a case where someone came in on Roman Pro with a blood pressure of 110, 
in that similar situation, that's probably not a normal blood pressure for that patient. Mm. And anything that's impeding the physiology, I think it's reasonable to take a step back and say, just for 24 hours, let's see what she's going to be tomorrow. So that would be my kind of take on it. Is that Sometimes I write on the drug touch chart, give the ramipril if your systolic's at 130, for example. But if it's 110, she's probably suffering a little bit from my perspective. Okay. Yeah. And I think we get so flustered about high blood pressure sometimes that actually it's the lower ones that acutely are going to do more damage isn't it if she's running at 150 i don't i'm not worried if she's running at 90 i'm going to be a lot more worried okay let's say doris we did we did check her renal function when she was looking at not so well and her creatinine had jumped up to to 200 what should we be doing then? I mean, obviously, I think we'd probably all stop her ramipril and her metformin and hopefully the brufen gel would all be stopped. But I think a lot of the time that's where it ends. It's kind of like, oh, she's on these medications. Let's just stop those medicines. What else should we be doing? Is that me or Peter? That's you, I think, Oz. <laughs> okay. Um, so that's a significant jump. We've got a creatinine of 90 that's gone to 200. This is a, a more than an AKI2. It's, it's, it's overly double the creatinine. So I'd be looking to, to produce a knee-jerk bundle of care that should happen for this patient. If she was hypotensive and sick, I'd probably want, be wanting my juniors to flag it to the med reg or the acute care team, intensive care, etc. if she's showing signs of hypotension. But if she's clinically well with a creatinine rise of 200, I teach my guys the following bundle. I think what we've been missing for a long time is almost a sepsis six approach to AKI. Um, and so I teach him the renal magnificent seven, which is the roundup 26. Do you want me to expand on that now? Or do you want to come back? Yeah. To so what I will say is that we'll, we will obviously pop this in the show notes. We'll, we'll go through it now, but I couldn't agree more that when I was sitting listening to you, when we were at Sam Glasgow, that I think every hospital has AKA guidelines, just like we have guidelines for everything else. And my pet hate with these things is that they're often five pages, at least long. They start with all the corporate trust rubbish bump at the beginning. And, you know, they've been checked by governance until the nth degree. And, and actually, it's completely useless for some poor junior doctor at three in the morning who just wants to know what to do. So having a, a sort of, I think that's one of the reasons sepsis six is so effective because people know it, they can remember it, it gets drilled into them. But having a, right, what do I do in this situation? And and this to me is great, and I, and I'm glad it got approved. <laughs> so, um, it's called Roundup, and again, that's uh, a lovely. I like a little mnemonic because it helps me remember stuff. So, um, let's go through it bit by bit. Then, what's the R? Okay, for so well, I think first things is there's a little bit of cleverness built in. It's it's a, it's been reviewed by multiple expert committees, but the fact that we call it Roundup Twenty Six builds in the subtle pickup. Okay, so one of the errors we've made in the past is giving our juniors multiple definitions of urine outputs and serum baseline creatinines. Ah, just let's stop and say, if your creatinine jumps by 26, I just want you to sit up and think about this. So built into the headline is the subtle pickup of AKI, which has traditionally been very badly done. So if the creatinine jumps by 26, the R is for repeat usinese. That means you leave serial usinese out till they're normalizing. So you put on your iSoft system or whatever it is you use, creatinine tomorrow, please. Make sure it's in the handover. That's the R. Oh, obstruction ruled out. 
Now, before the radiologists here kill me, I'm saying that we do not want an ultrasound on every creatinine riser 26. But what I want my F1 AMP PA to do is engage brain and consider obstruction. So maybe tap out the bladder clinically, say, can we have a bladder scan in the bay? If it's a bad AKI, by all means, get a renal ultrasound. If it's creatinine's worse again tomorrow, consider an ultrasound. But just think about obstruction, include it in your history, and make sure you haven't missed it. Okay. So can yeah. I ask you a question on it? So first of all, sure. I think this is great for those that are POCUS trained, Peter. When we worked together previously, uh, I got Peter to come and uh, ultrasound somebody who's got huge hydronephrosis. I mean, it is such a good skill for acute physicians to have. It can be incredibly useful, especially at sort of 4 p.m. on a Friday when you're like, ah, everything's shutting. But my question is, ultrasound or CTKUB, is there a preference? Does it matter? Does it depend what you're sort of looking for? So I think it depends on the clinical scenario. And if it's just a simple obstruction, and it's an acute illness, let's go ultrasound. You know, if somebody has, for example, we had a patient last week with a sort of ascending UTI and a pyelonephritis picture, and actually they needed a CTKUB because there was a question of ureteric perforation raised. That if they need it, do it. I'm not not saying don't give contrast, but in the first instance, I, in, in our trust, we can get a bladder scan done just by one of the nurses in the bay, plus or minus an ultrasound. Is that the same as in your trust? Can you get bladder scans readily on many wards? Yeah, I mean, I think I work in a, um, a sort of a secondary or a tertiary centre for some specialties. So, you know, we're in a city hospital, so we've got we've got bladder scans readily available. What I don't know is whether that's the same in all hospitals. Peter, I presume yours is the same. Yeah, it is pretty much the same. We, we've got red, red, uh, readily access to bladder scans. We can get a CTKUB if needed out of hours. Um, wouldn't be able to get an ultrasound out of hours, however, unless it's a POCUS scan, and that depends on who's available to do that POCUS scan. So if if I was in a small – I do a bit of work in sort of uh, resource-poor countries and things. If you're in doubt and you've percussed out that large bladder, actually on risk-benefit is reasonable to do a catheter if you can't perform the scan. But I think most of us hopefully should have access to a, to at least a bladder scan. I guess that raises the question of catheterization. So alongside stopping those medications, the other thing that everybody gets is a catheter. I don't always like that, especially in elderly mm. patients. So they, they can cause more harm and, and they can be horrible for people. And especially if you've got a bit of delirium mixed in there as well. So uh, you're nodding. So I'm hoping I'm not saying the wrong uh, thing. But... Yeah, you will find sometimes the knee jerk response is AKI, you've got a catheter. And I think exactly, you know, risk benefit says don't do that. If you've got somebody who's showing signs of progressing to multi-organ failure and low blood pressure and you want to monitor the urine output, that's a different kettle of fish. I don't think any of us here would want a catheter because our creatinine had gone up by 50. So, you know, I, I think once you've, how many times do we see putting the catheter in scrapes the urethra and all of a sudden you've got urosepsis three days later? So if it's an AKI and they are, they are able to pass urine, that's fine. I think you can make a judgment call on whether you know, you're leaving an elderly patient in a bed full of urine. Sometimes that comes in to say, do we need a catheter for comfort and management wise? Well, that's an individual clinician's decision. But absolutely don't put a catheter into every AKI. I agree with you. Great. Um, moving on to you then. Okay, so where are we up to? We've done the R, we've done the O, and we are up to you. So urine output. How often does your 
fluid balance charts say the following. Your OTT, which I've discovered means out to toilet, or wet plus, plus, plus. So even on our renal ward, that's what the fluid balance office says. So, you know, don't even bother giving a junior a definition of the urine output for, for the acute front door because who has their urine output monitored in the back of an ambulance and ED? It don't, it don't happen, does it? So, but you can, once you've got them on AMU, kick up a stink, speak to the nurse in the bay and say, look, we need fluid balance here. Please make sure it's done. Um, and you can at least request it and include it in the handover to the next ward that you hand over to. So that's urine output. Happy? Yeah, I think it's just worth hammering home. And for some of our nurses that are run ragged and, and how our ED colleagues work on the corridor, I've got no idea. But um, it's sometimes helpful for us, to, for us to really highlight those patients where this really matters. But also when you've got an engaged patient, I mean, we were just talking about, you know, if, if we had an AKI, we'd be quite capable of going to the loo and, and sort of knowing that we needed to measure our own urine. I do the same with people with asthma and their peak flows, give them a little bit of uh, responsibility of that. And actually it gives it gives them a bit of something to do and feeling of responsibility. So if you've got a patient who's compus mentis, telling them we need to measure your urine can be really helpful. And telling the nurses which ones we really need the urine output measured on is also really important. It's the same as still charts, I find, as well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. get the patient to fill out in. <laughs> okay so for doris in particular if we hadn't put her down for serial creatinines because that baseline creatinine was unknown actually if we were charting her urine output it would probably have shown oligonuria over the weekend and that hopefully would have flagged her should we go to n yeah R-O-U-N. N now stands for, because this is um, one of the National AKI SIG committees suggested we needed to include a sepsis identifier because sepsis and AKI coexist in about 40% of cases. Okay, so it's, it's that common that they coexist and the kidneys are such a great barometer of acutely unwell patients that if the new score hits five, I would like my junior clinicians to consider sepsis six and roll out the sepsis six bundle as well, if appropriate. So N is for News 5, think sepsis and act accordingly. Any questions for that? Yeah, I, I'm trying to be grumpy because I hate sepsis. I, in general, just feel like sepsis, whenever it gets mentioned, everything else gets ignored. But actually, it seems reasonable in this case. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think for, can't argue with 40%. I no. <laughs> yeah, I, again, a lot of you, you try a lot of your juniors and they'll come out with give three, take three, and they usually get to number four and forget it thereafter. I don't know if you've tried Just try it tomorrow on the ward round. Say, give me, and, and they'll say give three, take three. So I, the guys who use Buffalo or O Fluid as their little memory often give you the whole bundle so you know at that point by all means peel off and do oxygen fluid lactate urine output infection screen and drugs so that's n for news five yeah and and i think that i don't have an issue with people thinking about sepsis i just have an issue of sepsis making people then brain dead to thinking about anything else um so and and i guess it would go hand in hand wouldn't it if you've got a septic patient you then need to think about the aki as well so symbiotic relationship and i guess the, you know we've put a lot so much 
press attention and national efforts into sepsis. And if you look at the numbers, which admittedly are difficult to tease out from each other, it's about twice as many die of AKI. So, mm. you know, not only is it so common that 15% of people have got AKI coming through the front door, um, yeah, but, you know, they often coexist. So definitely, definitely should be included. I'd like to get some little cards made with Roundup 26 on one side and sepsis 6 on the other because mm. they coexist. Mm. And I think both are basic competencies for front door. Hmm. yeah okay so okay. that's the, the new score yeah so then we're up to d so we try and keep this as simple as possible remember you know we might have compromised on detail a little bit to get the right things done so d is dry or wet if your patient is dry we want you to fill them up sensibly not aggressively aggressively overhydrate, but make sure they're not intravascularly dry and at the same time you know making sure that they're you're not putting a drip in one hand and fruzamide in the other that's not right <laughs> <laughs> so if they're dry we'll fill them up and if they're wet we kept this as simple as possible if the patient is fluid overloaded with a kidney injury and you're on a front door clinician and reasonably junior then what we want you to do is is discuss that with a senior. If you're fluid, you know, cardiorenal syndrome, it's not that simple to, to manage. We're not telling you how to do that. But if you're fluid overloaded, flag it to your reg or flag it to your consultant or flag it to your, your competent senior. So I can't remember what I was listening to the other day, but it was talking about, it was probably another of the talks at Sam Glasgow, but talking about identifying whether people are overloaded or not. And people who are grossly overloaded, it's really easy to pick up. People are very dry. It's very easy to pick up. But the, the, the ones in the middle, it's, it can be quite mm. tricky. Any tips for that? I think undoubtedly it is. And we're waiting for that. There's a national body of work with someone doing a PhD in Cardiff or Bristol who's going to bring those out. But, you know, there's, we've all tried various tricks over the years. Some people will do the IVC compression with an ultrasound. My years as a registrar, I did CVP monitoring using an ultrasound at 45 degrees. And if I'm, you know, if I'm in two two minds, I will actually put the ultrasound on your internal jugular, and I can, you know, it has the usual caveats that if they've got pulmonary hypertension, tricuspid regage, that's not mm. much use. But actually, that's my own little trick I use when I'm not quite sure if they're intravascularly dry and peripherally accumulating fluid. It's a tricky call. It's one of the, the mysteries mm. of medicine, isn't it? Yeah. I, so I need to get you with your magic poker skills again, Peter, to come and help me. <laughs> do you do uh, IVC compression, Peter? Because somebody did that for the other day. Yeah, occasionally. I mean, I think what's important with IVC compression is not just doing it once. It's like going back and reassessing after your fluid challenge, okay. if you like, to see if it's made any impact. Yeah. So uh, if you're a front door clinician, you're in two minds, you know, speak to someone who's empowered to... to to make the decision and, and uh, go to your senior. Yeah. Okay. And um, our next U. Okay. The XU is really more important than most people realize. So if somebody comes in and is acutely unwell with an AKI and the person on the front door puts a catheter into them, they've just scraped a piece of plastic down the urethra and lo and behold, the urine will always show plus one and plus two. So last week, a beautiful example, we had a young fella come in of 40 with an AKI and actually they did dip his urine. So they identified a renal renal cause as in the renal parenchymal cause of his AKI. So this wasn't pre-renal, which usually gives you a bland urine, and it wasn't a post-renal obstruction. And he transpired to actually have a Shigella toxin-mediated process, so he had S-Tech. And if they hadn't identified that with the urine dip, 
you know, we'd have probably progressed to giving him antibiotics and, uh, and, and made his chances worse of, of, of not augmenting the kidney injury. So, um, so do, uh, do I think that one is important? I think it is really important. Get the urine dip done at the front door. There's a current move saying, oh, please don't dip on the elderly because everyone ends up getting treated UTI. Well, I think that's shortchanging people. You know, as a as a nephrologist, if you've come in with AKI, I want to know what's in your urine because I want to not miss an autoimmune catastrophe. Yeah, but I mean, again, it comes to that um, lesser known skill of common sense, doesn't it? <laughs> it's like if you if you dip um, Doris's urine and she's got a plus of of white cell and a, a, a trace of something else, but no symptoms whatsoever, and you treat yeah. it as a, a, a urine infection, then that's not very sensible but if she's got three plus of blood and three plus of uh, protein then that's not normal and it's it's about just making sure you're thinking about the tests that you're doing and what you're looking for probably worth worth mentioning that if the protein comes black as one plus then all we're looking for that front door clinician to do is to then say okay i'll quantify it so you tick the urine protein creatinine ratio now this is another a fantastic area of of ignorance for for most for most on the front door the ratio comes back for example uh, you know the ratio might be three and most junior clinicians and seniors don't know how to convert that to how much protein urea that actually is so i sit in renal clinic and i get referred GP patients with a urinary protein creatinine ratio of three because it's marked as abnormal. Mm. So I always say to my guys, look, if, if the PCR is three times it by 10, and that's how many milligrams you're producing in a day, just to give them a picture of mm -hmm. how much protein it is. But if you dip it, it's positive, please quantify. And we haven't expanded on anything more complex than that, but it's of use that if the AKI progresses and renal come down, then at least we've got that baseline that we know that a renal renal cause of the AKI might be possible. So something that always comes up in these podcasts for Peter and I spend a lot of our life, I'm sure you do Oz as well, signing off results on patients we've never seen. I was um, going to ask this question. <laughs> so so we'll, we'll be merrily signing away and, and actually urinary ACRs are something that is frequently sort of coming back more and more which is good because it means people are thinking about it but then what do we do so you know we'll open up pens and and sometimes it's really not apparent why it's even been sent apart from somebody's done a urine dip as a renal physician what when do you want to see them if ever Oh, okay. So you've opened a whole bag of worms here. Yeah. In, Dor in Doris's <laughs> case, she's 85. And if she came back as a one plus of protein, I'd, I'd probably want to know she hasn't got a myeloma in the background. So if I was seeing her with Dane trigger a bit of a Bence Jones or a serum free light chain, depending on where you are. Um, so, you know, the one plus of protein in an AKI in the elderly, myeloma still happens. So think of it. If they've just had a catheter, I don't think anyone will hold a gun to your head to say you missed that because of the scraping the protein off issue. And when do I want to see them as a renal? Well, you know, in terms of up to half a gram, you'll sometimes see hypertensive people and the diabetics and it's just a chronic stable findings. I think you're asking me a question that's got too many variables. <laughs> okay. It's just very hard, isn't it? Because I mean, Peter, I'm sure you get this as well. It's just you've got this urinary ACR result back and you just don't quite know what to do with it. And it's sort of that cut off of when we should be referring on. What what do you do? You know, cl clear, just clearly, if it's a twenty eight year old with no medical history, that's yeah. a totally different kettle of fish from someone yeah. who's been hypertensive for thirty years. So.
Peter, what do you do? Yeah, that's a, that's a very good question. Uh, I do wonder what I do half time. So I think I, I, <laughs> I asked the GP to repeat it after a few weeks' time to make see if it is coming back to them. Because quite often it's it's taken when someone's had an AKI, and I, I'd know maybe that that's the wrong thing to do to ask GP to see if it's normalising. I also have a look at the drugs list as well because if they're on a nascent hypnotism and maybe their blood pressure is not controlled, I would also suggest increasing the nascent inhibitor uh, to try and reduce any proteinuria. But I have I have no idea whether I'm doing the right thing. I'll be quite honest. Peter, I think we almost become inured to the fact that you abnormal urinalysis on AMU is people almost view it as normal because A, you've got people with acute mm. inflammatory illnesses and they get an immune complex GN effectively where they lay down a bit of protein as part of their high temperature of 39. You've got the elderly with their static bladders that don't empty, that become colonized with bacteria. So if I was an F1 now, it would seem to me that every other person has an abnormal <laughs> um, abnormal urinalysis, okay? and uh, But in nephrology clinic, we'll be sent people with a one plus of protein and that might be a reasonable referral but it's really hard on amu because of acute illness the elderly with static bladders post catheterization samples i don't envy anybody who has to go through those results and make head and the tail of a, of a protein creatinine ratio it's loads of fun loads of fun absolutely <laughs> my favorite thing to do um i yeah so i guess I, I don't think it's unreasonable to ask a GP, especially in the context of acute illness, to repeat it. I just feel that I don't want to then give that GP the same headache that I have six weeks later. So, but then I suspect they're probably slightly more used to that because it's part of some of the health, general health checks they do anyway, isn't it? I don't know. But I'd, I'd probably be putting my details on a letter to sort of say, look, let's do this. And then if it still comes back as, po- as positive, please don't hesitate to contact me back. But then that's because I'm just aware of not wanting to dump things on my GP colleagues. Too many variables on that one. I can't give you an overarching principle, I'm afraid. Okay. Well, at least we know that it's not easy and it's not us just being dumb. <laughs> yeah, that was actually quite reassuring, to be fair. <laughs> <laughs> um, where are we up to? So we're up to P. Urine, urinalysis. P. So, yeah. So P is the much debated one. So um, if you want to see people get angry, use the word nephrotoxins. Now, previously <laughs> that had, that ain't bothered me, but I have met some very animated people at all the expert <laughs> committees who start rioting in the back rows as soon as you say nephrotoxin. And that's because for a number of reasons. Have you ever been to a a, a group of geriatricians and called somebody acopic? That similar <laughs> response. It's similar. So, in terms of in terms of nephrotoxins, um, why do people get angry? Patients get angry because they were ever put on a nephrotoxin. I remember seeing one chap who wanted to sue his cardiologist because his ramipril had caused a deterioration in his EGFR of twenty percent. And I was sitting there thinking, well, that's 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 what he does. Okay, so patients get angry. Um, GPs in the community then reluctant post-AKI to put them back on so-called nephrotoxins. So we're moving away from this word, and it's been much debated. People said, shall we use nephrosensitive drugs? So I don't know if you've ever been up to an orthopedic SHO and said, you know what a nephrosensitive drug is? And you know what they say? (laughs) They go, is that the same as a nephrotoxin? So you just find yourself nodding and going, okay. So we're, we're dropping nephrotoxins, and we're moving towards a prescription review. Personally, I don't I don't worry as long as the junior doctor or clinician stops the kidney badness at three o'clock in the morning when the AKI is there. That's the important thing for me. 
it doesn't much matter to me whether they realize that metformin isn't an nephrotoxin. It's just accumulated and causing you a lactic acidosis or whether it's a genuine nephrotoxin like gentamicin or a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory or whether it's something that's just augmenting the kidney injury because it, it's, it's, it's hammering your physiology in the acute illness like ramipril. So, you know, ramipril is a great drug to be on, but for the three to four days you've got an AKI, it needs to come off and then go back on. The problem we've all seen, as we discussed earlier, is that the average day delay to restarting something like an ACE inhibitor post-AKI in the community is about two years. And those people then represent with heart failure. So we've moved away from nephrotoxins and we're at prescription review. And again, every clinician should have hopefully an inkling that, you know, what do I want to stop in an AKI? I don't want to be giving them a drip with furizamide because that doesn't make any sense in general. And anything that's pushing that blood pressure down when the elderly have got saggy blood pressure as part of an acute illness, just withhold it for a couple of days. But make sure in your plan it says, you know, aiming to, to review this in three days' time. We don't want it stopped for good. Prescription review is P. Yeah, so I guess one of the things that I've... Uh, I can't remember. Oh, I, I know why I did this. It was my own mum who was on um, naproxen, I think, for 15 years, and much to my annoyance. But I then started to look at actually how many people are on non-steroidals. And it's really impossible to know because you can get them over the counter. So lots of patients don't think of that as a medication, do they, when you're asking about medications? And to the extent that not so long ago, I found a patient taking them whilst they were in hospital with all their other medications. We duly stopped all their medications that aren't helpful during the acute <laughs> kidney injury for you see, that's why nephrotoxins works, because it's one word to say what we all mean. But um, they <laughs> Don't speak up on behalf of the word nephrotoxins. They'll come and get you. They got me. <laughs> but we'd stopped all, the, all those other medications, but they were continuing to pop their daily ibuprofen because their knees needed it. So it's just a, a top tip, really, to always ask about the, the over-the-counter stuff because people just don't think to mention it because they, they can't be harmful because I got them from Boots. And of course, there's always that dual combination that's absolutely beautiful to have in your kidneys, which is the afferent and the efferents affected by non-steroidal anti-inflammatory and an ACE inhibitor at the other end. And you beautifully primed Doris for her renal function to deteriorate massively as soon as she gets a fever and gets unwell. So always look for that combination, you know, to, to, to just withhold for, for a few days until we've got them over it. Because it is interesting, isn't it? So in home bargains, you can get all sorts of stuff. You can get brufin, you can get brufin gel, and it's it, you can you can have a wonderful cocktail. Yeah, so, I mean, we have, it. <laughs> we, we, have <laughs> we have to make sure that our, our clinicians on the front door just know that scenario of common drugs that the opiates accumulate, that metformin, you're more at risk of your lactic acidosis, that anything that's dropping your blood pressure when you're struggling to maintain your blood pressure, amylodipine, ramipril, all those things need to be just not stopped, but just withheld for a couple of days till that kidney function is normalized. So I guess that's a really good point, isn't it? Because actually with electronic prescribing now, you've got this ability to suspend and that, that hopefully, you know, a much better way of doing things than sort of stopping them because then when they get to go home, it gives somebody that brain space to think, oh, yes, they were on this. Let's, what are we going to do about this? Let's have a plan. So for Doris, for example, let's say she was on 10 milligrams of Rampril, so top dose of Rampril, she comes in with a cap and she it's now day three and she's clearly getting better and she's getting worked up for going, being discharged. 
Should we resume the ramifil at 10 milligrams or should we reintroduce it slowly? I think you'd look at the picture. There's Doris doing better and her blood pressure's 120. I want to start that ramifil again because she's a heart failure patient. I don't know there's a fixed answer to this. I think at that point, mm. it would be reasonable to, to, you know, if you bring it in at 2.5, is it going to get titrated back up? It depends on your primary care service, doesn't it? How interactive your GPs are, how hard pressed they are. So I would say at that point, again, it's a judgment call. I'd probably started at a smidge, but with a plan in the discharge summary that says, please titrate up to background dose. And, and patients, put the patients in charge of their drugs. So, Doris, if you're feeling well next week, by all means, you can double it up to five. And the week after, you can go back on your old dose. Okay. Yeah. Sounds good. So, my next question is going to be about who... So, if we referred every single AKI to renal, the only time that the renal team would like that is if they're trying to get a business case for more renal consultants because you just <laughs> explode. But there's so many, what, what is that, 15 to 20% of the medical take by ED have got an AKI. And then at 90 days, 15% of those will have died. So the key is that we want you to see the ones that you really need to see. What is that? Is that based on an AKI two, three? How do you, how do you, so, cause obviously you've got that joy of being yeah. in a good position on a real position. Who do you think? Well, you I found myself in the opposition on a Friday afternoon of phoning up the acute renal team and saying, I got five five hospital numbers here. You need to watch these over the weekend. And they demonstrate <laughs> then as well. So I am in the same situation as all of you. And it's part of the reason it's fallen in between two stools that the rest of the world has said, this is AKI, this must be kidneys problem. Whereas renal have said, crikey, there's about, you know, there's so much of that about upstairs, we can't get to it all. And they end up seeing less than 10% of the AKIs that come to them. So sure, an AKI 3, most, you know, hyperlinks on, on an AKI bundle will say contact renal if you've got a renal service there for an AKI 3. If you look at, if, if you've got an AKI 2, let's say your creatinine's gone to 200 from 100, from 100 uh, in a 24-hour period, that's a doubling. Those kidneys, whatever, however reassured you are by the EGFR that says EGFR 22, it ain't. If they've doubled in 24 hours, that's an AKI 3 tomorrow. So you really, you've got to look at this. It's not absolute numbers, apart from when you're talking about an AKI 3. You've got to look at the sequence of the creatinines, where it's heading to, and the individual case. So, you know, an, an old chap who's got a, an obstructing prostate who you put a catheter into, may well show a marked improvement tomorrow. That's less of a worry than an unexplained AKI in someone with blood and protein in their urine in their 30s where you think, actually, I'd have a really low threshold to put that past the renal registrar. Mm. That's probably not that much use, is it, to you all? No, I, I think... Too many variables again. No, no, I, I like that because I think, like I said before, we, we don't often engage common sense and we should be thinking before we do things. And like you say, that, that you could have two people with identical creatinines, but one of them, you've got a very clear reason, you've done something to make it better. Um, and another one, your your sort of heckles are raised because you don't know what's going yeah. on and it's gone up. And 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 that comes to, uh, you know, I ambulated somebody, um, was it last week or the week before, who uh, I didn't want to, but they were desperate to go home. And actually I thought about it and it was that somebody who'd come in who'd had a nasty infection who hadn't really drank, who was now getting better. And their their AKI was worrying me, but they were going to come back the next day for repeat use and ease. Um, and I just thought, well, do you know what? I've got a cause that we've resolved that. I've stopped drugs that are potentially going to make it worse. 
this is the joy of having an SDEC or an ambulatory care service that we can do that. Whereas had I not got a reason for that creatinine, I would have been a lot more uncomfortable. We run lots of AKI and SDEC. I think it's a good condition to do it for exactly that reason. You know, stop the drug for a couple of days, make sure you're hydrated and, and what you're, I don't yeah. need to admit you to know what your serial creatinines yeah. are in the next 48 hours. So I think yeah. it's a really good condition for yeah. SDEC often. Peter, any other questions? No, I, I don't think so. I suppose um, one thing I think, thinking back when I was a trainee, is when should I involve urology? I assume that's just when there's an obstruction, but when should I wake them up in the middle of the night? <laughs> so when so on general medicine if you're any, any anything like us we get lots of urological conditions coming in by the medical take and when should i wake them up in the middle of the night well one when we can't recatheterize because of a different difficult you know complex prostatic patient or remember an obstructed infected system is always a medical emergency those patients do badly and if you're thinking pyonephrosis and pus and sepsis and 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 that's obstructed i think that's a reasonable call as well to speak to them but apart from I've got a very low threshold to, co to contact my colleagues in urology. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, sorry, go on. What were you going to say? Well, I, was just, I always get a bit surprised that they don't get more excited because if I find hydronephrosis, <laughs> I get really excited. And I was like, oh, the urologists will want to know. And then often they seem fairly nonplussed by it. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> uh, for the sake of politics, I'm not going to expand on this. <laughs> I'm going to change tack because they'll come and get me. Can I just mention? something i see so many people falsely reassured by the egfr okay i'll see mm. juniors who you can see them thought process they go well this patient's come in and the creatinine's going up but their egfr is 42 and i don't even need to alter the doses with an egfr of 42 so this can't be bad okay so i often stop them and go look what should your creatinine be now 80 will say i said if i remove both of your kidneys now and put them in that surgical bin what would your creatinine be in five minutes and they say well you know i said well it's still 80 so your egfr is greater than 90 but your real gfr is zero and in 12 hours time your creatinine will have gone up to 140 and your egfr reading might well be 42 but we know it's actually zero. So you can get that point across to them that don't be falsely reassured by an EGFR. EGFR is for the steady state, not for acute illness. And that's really yeah. important. Yeah. One of our colleagues um, that Peter works with, I've worked with previously, is always um, talking about, I don't care what the EGFR is, tell me what the creatinine is. Because we didn't used to get an EGFR um, um, results. It always just used to be the creatinine. And now I think we get an EGFR. People tend to look at that instead of, don't they? Yeah, yeah. And, they miss, and they miss really important kidney injuries because they're reassured by anything over 30. Mm. Mm. Okay, look at this. Look, just graph your creatinines. When it's going vertical, that's bad. <laughs> <laughs> lovely um anything else peter that you want to um no i think that's it for me that was brilliant anything else that you want to say else just the challenges for the future okay so the next ones we've got to do at the fixing this at the front door is to sort out the post aki follow-up okay primary care is hard pressed and swamped and if you do stop a ramipril and they've got an aki us sam if anyone wants to have a subspecial group committee is how to start how to fix aki follow-up on discharge i've got a few ideas and we need to look at that for one uh and i guess the other thing we could do in another podcast for a smaller group in the future is they all do pre-renal well they all do post-renal well they don't do renal renal well the shutters no. come down and that could be another good teaching point at some point mm. yeah that, mm. that just scares me 
when we start to get glomerulin nephritides and things talked about, I just start to think, oh, I wish I'd were paid more attention in my medical school. I can simplify that, but not today. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think it, I mean, I tend to, to use SDEC sometimes maybe when we shouldn't be for bringing people back just to make sure that things, because you can't ask primary care. I completely agree for repeat creatinine within the sort of week or whatever I think that that does sit nicely I think there's there's a problem isn't there and and it would be a good group to explore that yeah I, I think virtual ward looks good to me in, in my trust we've always got as many acute physicians who are renal as we have in the renal department so we're well you know well able to use it on virtual ward and I think I think AKI sits quite well in virtual ward lovely well I think with that then as usual, we've chatted for longer than I thought we would, but um, lots of pearls of wisdom there. I think this will be a really good one for the for the show notes because we'll put there's there's a lovely poster that Oz has got with a roundup on it, so we'll add that to it, um, and then a few of the other references that we've made reference to during this podcast. So with that, we'll say just goodbye. just to say to advertise just quickly for the roundup side of things, we have a media company who can just send you it to your trust and you can print it up as a teaching tool if you want your trust logo on it i think they charge 25 quid but that's not bad for something that's been through how do they arrange that is that by yourself or yeah um so our aki sig group at our hospital the amps okay. are all heavily involved if you email me we can we can do it via that route uh they're called skim media in plymouth anyone wants to search skim media uh, you'll find them and they, they can send you it with your trust or without your trust logo and as usual, anybody from the Sam podcast team are always happy to hear from people and we can always redirect you to the right person if need be. Lovely. Any other Good to meet you all. Good to see you all. <laughs> okay. Bye, everyone. Love you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Society of Acute Medicine podcast. We hope this episode has been interesting and helpful for you all. Please do go to the Sam website, www.acutemedicine.org.uk for all things acute medicine including show notes from today's episode under the education menu. You'll also find more info about acute medicine, the team, and how to contact us individually. Please do get in touch with us via Twitter using at AcuteMedPod. Let us know what you thought, as well as topics you'd like us to explore in future episodes, or if you would love to get involved. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you join us next time.